Around the world, there is a growing movement toward de-dollarization. More and more countries are seeking alternatives to the United States dollar, largely because the US government has weaponized its currency in order to impose sanctions on countries and block them from using international financial institutions. Also, domestic US monetary policy has had a negative impact on economies around the world, and many countries are seeking alternatives. Now, the narrative in Washington about de-dollarization has been very schizophrenic. At the same time, we're constantly led to believe by politicians in Washington and many media outlets in the United States that the US dollar is not going anywhere. The dollar is and will always be the world's reserve currency, the currency used for international investment and trade, and that's not gonna change anytime. That's the narrative that we're told. And simultaneously, the narrative that we're also told is that China and Russia are serious threats that are challenging the hegemony of the US dollar through the creation of new financial institutions. Now, again, I mentioned this is very schizophrenic. It's a contradictory narrative because you, they can't both simultaneously be true. But we can see that the narrative that the dominance of the US dollar is inevitable and permanent is simply their coping mechanism because the reality is that not only china not only russia but more and more countries around the world are indeed seeking alternatives and the u.s congress has acknowledged this this june the house of representatives financial service committee held a hearing specifically about this topic titled dollar dominance preserving the US dollar status as the global reserve currency. This was a bipartisan hearing. It was mostly dominated by Republicans, but it also featured Democrats. And they agreed that their priority is to maintain the supremacy of the US dollar. That's the word they use. They say we must maintain the dominance and supremacy of the US dollar in the global economy. The dominance and supremacy of the currency affords the United States numerous benefits. The session also invited economists who are all right-wing economists, that's inevitable, and they were very triumphant in their remarks. One of them said that when he worked at the Treasury in the Donald Trump administration, they made it clear that the dollar will always be the world's global reserve currency. As Assistant Secretary, I told my team that the Treasury Secretary proudly states that the dollar will never not be the world's reserve currency, and our job is to make sure that's true. Another neoconservative economist in the hearing declared proudly that the U.S. dollar is the king of all currencies and a powerful symbol of American financial royalty. Our republic has never been ruled by a monarch. The U.S. dollar has become a powerful symbol of American financial royalty. Indeed, the dollar is often described as the king of all currencies, and rightly so. However, at the same time, we saw the same kind of schizophrenic attitude in this congressional hearing, because there are also some of the same people warning of the growing number of threats to the hegemony of the US dollar, and especially with the creation of new financial institutions by China, Russia, the BRICS system of Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa, and other countries in the global south. The link between a nation's currency and its role as the relatively dominant political actor on the world stage is pretty clear. And that is why people like Lula from Brazil 
Putin and Xi all aspire to undercut the role of the dollar as the global reserve currency. In my view, Chairman Xi poses the most serious threat to this effort. Look, the, the BRICS are, I mean, these are countries, India being an exception in, the, in that, but these are countries that are autocratic or otherwise have you know, very hostile opinions of the United States, uh, especially Russia and China. As an example of these blatant contradictions, many of the Congress people in the hearing boasted that the power of the U.S. dollar allows Washington to impose sanctions on its foreign adversaries to try to cripple their economies. And at the same time, some of the economists warn that by overusing U.S. sanctions, it actually fuels de-dollarization and weakens U.S. dollar dominance. As the United States has increased its reliance on financial sanctions as a tool of foreign policy, it has provoked anti-dollar policy responses from our adversaries. The growing number of states espousing anti-dollar viewpoints and adopting anti-dollar policies does threaten to weaken the future potency of U.S. financial sanctions. The lessons we can take from uh, the sanctions against Russia, I would say before the war and after, again, are that they provoke right, our adversaries to move into alternative currencies. In fact, they, they sort of require it, right, because targets cannot use the dollar system, and so they're forced to move into other currencies. We've seen, again, leading up to the war, Russia settling more trade with China in euros, settling more trade with China in, in, uh, in the yuan. We've seen that uh, increase with the focus on the yuan and then rubles after the, after the invasion and the new rounds of sanctions. Now, the fact that this congressional hearing was even held is quite ironic because we're constantly told by defenders of dollar hegemony that there is no threat. De-dollarization is not actually happening. It's either a conspiracy theory or it's exaggerated. But if it's false, if it's a conspiracy theory, if it's exaggerated, why did the House of Representatives feel so compelled to hold a two hour hearing specifically about this topic? This hearing was two hours long and I listened to every minute of it. And I today have highlighted some of the main points to take away. So you can learn about the hegemony of the US dollar, the benefits economically that it gives to the United States, which is the exorbitant privilege, which is a form of imperialism. This is how the United States can maintain these exploitative economic policies around the world and extract the surplus value produced by workers around the world, especially in the global south. So their wealth is extracted and it's sent to the United States and they don't actually see the benefit of their own labor, whereas wealthy oligarchs and corporations and Wall Street benefit in the United States at their expense. The most ironic way to begin today would be to look at a comment that was made in the hearing by a Republican congresswoman from Texas, Monica de la Cruz, and she very dismissively said that there is this narrative that de-dollarization has begun and it's the beginning of the end for U.S. dollar dominance. However, she insisted, of course, that's not going to happen. Now, this hearing comes at a critical time when some academics and naysayers are spreading theories that de-dollarization has begun and that the beginning of the end has arrived for the dollar's dominant role as a global reserve currency. Now, if you watched the hearing, you could see that this was an attitude that was shared by pretty much everyone who participated, Republican or Democrat, Congress member or economist, they pretty much all insisted that it is inevitable that the US dollar 
will be the global reserve currency and they have to defend it with that status. And they begin the hearing boasting of all of the benefits that this gives the United States. The hearing was specifically organized by the Subcommittee on National Security, Illicit Finance and International Financial Institutions. And the chair of that subcommittee is the Republican representative from Missouri, Blaine Lutkemeyer. And Lutkemeyer is a neoconservative anti-China hawk. Now, for people who don't know, the U.S. Congress, which has two chambers, the upper chamber is the Senate and the lower chamber is the House of Representatives. The House is currently controlled by the Republicans. They have a slim majority. So the chair of the subcommittee is himself a Republican. And he kicked off the session boasting of all of the benefits that dollar hegemony gives to the United States. U.S. dollar has been the preferred global currency since the end of World War II providing our nation in inherent economic advantages as well as responsibilities. Today, an estimated 88% of all currency transactions by value are conducted in U.S. dollars. Among other things, this limits the risk of a balance of payments crisis, which inherently lowers our exchange rate risk. The dollar's position also allows United States and Americans to borrow at rates such as 50 to 60 basis points lower. Our currency strength not only benefits the United States government, it also helps the American consumers by lowering the price of imported goods, resulting in an estimated 25 to $45 billion a year in savings. Finally, possibly the most important advantage of having the global reserve currency within our country is embedded in the title of our subcommittee, National Security. The dollar status allows us to apply powerful economic sanctions, which when used properly as in a targeted tool, can alter our adversaries' actions in a way that advances U.S. and global security. Today, the biggest threat to American and global security is the communist Chinese Communist Party. Because of the formidable impact that even U.S. universal sanctions can have, adversaries and even some friends have sought alternative payment methods and systems. It is anticipated that when the BRICS, which stands for Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa, have their annual summit this summer, they will discuss the feasibility of a common currency mechanism for trade when, uh, among, their, among their countries as an alternative to the dollar. Other countries, including Saudi Arabia, Iran, Argentina, the UAE, Algeria, Egypt, Bahrain, and Indonesia, have also expressed interest in such a mechanism. I don't think this idea is practical in the moment. Something like it could materialize in a not-so-distant future. China is also engaged in creating an alternative in the form of a central bank digital currency, or CBDC, which is which the Chinese Communist Security Agencies intend to use to surveil the financial activity of any user. Because the ECNY presents an assault on financial privacy and is a risk to our national security, introduced H.R. 804, the Chinese CBDC Prohibition Act of 2023. This bill prohibits U.S. money service businesses from engaging in transactions involving a central bank digital currency issued by China. Eventually, the United States will need to make a, de a decision. Do we open the door to the expansion of CCP's digital dollar, or do we slam it shut? My bill slams the door and locks it. Now, this congressional subcommittee is largely dominated by Republicans, especially neoconservative Republicans like the chair, Blaine Lutkemeyer, but it does have some Democrats as well. And the ranking member of the committee, which means the highest member of the opposition party, which right now is the Democratic Party because Republicans have a slim majority in the House, 
The ranking member is the Democratic Congresswoman from Ohio, Joyce Beatty. And she, although she often claims to be more progressive, right? She actually, in many ways, agreed entirely with the neoconservative Republicans. Her rhetoric was basically the exact same. Representative Beatty boasted that the supremacy of the U.S. dollar benefits the U.S. economy in many ways and also allows Washington to impose sanctions on foreign countries. And then she complained that China and Russia are trying to erode U.S. dollar dominance. And she also lamented that Beijing is trying to develop new international payment systems and alternatives to the SWIFT system, that is the interbank messaging system that is used by many banks around the world to send information, which is essentially how banks can communicate with each other. And China is trying to, trying to create new interbank messaging systems to get around U.S. sanctions and to use its own currency, the renminbi or RMB. And thank you to our witnesses for appearing here today to discuss the preservation of the U.S. dollar as the global reserve currency, a topic which we all agree is of the utmost importance. The U.S. dollar is considered the global reserve currency because roughly 60% of central bank reserves around the world are held in U.S. dollars. The dollar is the preferred currency for international trade. Oil is priced and settled in U.S. dollars. And nearly 90% of transactions in foreign exchange markets involve, yes, the dollar. The market for U.S. treasuries is also the deepest and most liquid market in the world. And the reliability and stability of U.S. capital markets makes the dollar the preferred currency for investors. The dominance and supremacy of the currency affords the United States numerous benefits from reduced borrowing costs to increased financial stability to influence over global financial markets. It also allows us to leverage economic measures against those that seek to threaten our national security and foreign policy. Given the undeniable value of the U.S. dollar's dominance, it is critical that we address the currency and the present threats to it. As we speak, foreign adversaries like Russia and China are actively working to undermine the U.S. dollar and cripple our global power and influence. We see this in Russia's rapid accumulation of gold reserves over the last decade, as well as China's development of non-SWIFT systems to settle and clear transactions involving the RMB. Furthermore, several other countries are pushing efforts to bypass use of the U.S. dollar and the U.S.-led financial system. That is why I agree that the subject of this hearing unquestionably deserves our time and attention in Congress and in this subcommittee. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Now, in addition to the Republican and Democratic members of Congress who participated in this hearing, there were right-wing economists who were invited to give expert testimony. One of them was Tyler Goodspeed. He is a very conservative neoliberal economist who chaired the Council of Economic Advisors under former U.S. President Donald Trump. He spoke at length, detailing the many different ways in which the dominance of the U.S. dollar benefits the United States. The fact that 90% of all foreign exchange transactions continue to involve 
the United States dollar, and that global central banks continue to hold almost 60% of their foreign exchange reserves in US dollars confers net economic benefits on the United States economy. First, foreign demand for reserves of US dollars raises demand for dollar-denominated securities, in particular United States treasuries. This effectively lowers the cost of borrowing for US households, US companies, and federal, state, and local governments. It also means that on average, the United States earns more on its investments in foreign assets than we have to pay on foreign investments in the United States, which allows the United States to import more goods and services than we export. Second, foreign demand for large reserves of US dollars and dollar-denominated assets raises the value of the dollar, and a stronger dollar benefits US consumers and businesses that are net importers of goods and services from abroad. Third, large reserve holdings of US currency abroad, in effect, constitutes an interest-free loan to the United States worth about 10 to $20 billion per year. Fourth, the denomination of the majority of international transactions in US dollars likely modestly lowers the exchange rate risks faced by US companies. Fifth, the given the volume of foreign US dollar holdings and dollar-denominated debt, monetary policy actions by foreign central banks generally have a smaller impact on financial conditions in the United States than actions by the United States central bank have on financial conditions in other countries. This does not include the substantial benefit to which the, the, the chairman referred of the United States dollars centrality in global transactions allowing the United States to utilize financial sanction tools when appropriate, in support of national security objectives. Now, this is important to point out because we've constantly heard defenders of U.S. dollar hegemony, centrist economists like, for instance, Paul Krugman of The New York Times, who's, you know, a, a center, basically center-right economist, but not as explicitly right-wing as this Trump economist, Tyler Goodspeed. Krugman has constantly argued in The New York Times that the US dollar being the global reserve currency supposedly does not benefit the United States, that exorbitant privilege either doesn't exist or it's exaggerated. I actually discussed this topic specifically with the economist Michael Hudson, who just debunked Krugman completely. But here we see Donald Trump's top economic advisor boasting in this congressional hearing of exactly the opposite. Another economist who participated in the hearing was Michael Falkender, who served as Donald Trump's Assistant Secretary of the Treasury for Economic Policy. He said very clearly that his role at the Treasury was to make sure that the US dollar is always the global reserve currency. As Assistant Secretary, I told my team that the Treasury Secretary proudly states that the dollar will never not be the world's reserve currency and our job is to make sure that's true. One reason the dollar is the world's reserve currency is because approximately half of global trade is invoiced in US dollars, even though US trade only accounts for approximately 10% of global trade. Some countries peg their currency to the dollar, bringing greater stability to their trade with the United States by removing currency risk. However, to keep the peg in place, those countries must also adopt the interest rates of the US Federal Reserve, causing interest rate effects here to be exported abroad. Now, I don't need to bore you with more and more analysis of all the ways in which the exorbitant privilege of having the U.S. dollar as the global reserve currency benefits the financial elites in the United States. 
It doesn't really benefit workers, it benefits the oligarchs. But regardless, there was also testimony from yet another veteran of the Donald Trump administration, Marshall Billingsley. Marshall Billingsley served as the Treasury's Assistant Secretary for Terrorist Financing, also under Donald Trump, and he previously worked at the Pentagon. He is a hardline neoconservative and an extreme anti-China hawk. In his testimony, he was a little more cautious, warning that China is challenging hegemony of the U.S. dollar. He pointed out, for instance, that there have been many different global reserve currencies throughout history, that the Spanish Empire and the Dutch Empire and the British Empire in their respective centuries, they had their own global reserve currency and that eventually went away. So he pointed out it's not necessarily inevitable that the U.S. dollar will always be dominant. And he warned that the greatest threat to U.S. dollar dominance is President Xi Jinping in Beijing. Uh, we need to remind ourselves that in the 16th century, the Spanish silver dollar was the dominant currency. In the 17th century, it was Dutch florins. In the 18th century, it was the pound sterling. The link between a nation's currency and its role as the relatively dominant political actor on the world stage is pretty clear. And that is why people like Lula from Brazil, Putin and Xi all aspire to undercut the role of the dollar as the global reserve currency. In my view, Chairman Xi poses the most serious threat to this effort. It should therefore come as no surprise that he, via the, people, the, the, the People's Bank of China, would like to undercut both the dollar and sanctions-proof the Chinese economy. This former top-level Trump administration official actually went out of his way to demonize BRICS, excluding India, as an alliance of autocratic anti-U.S. countries. Note that he defends India here because, of course, the U.S. strategy is to try to break apart BRICS, divide BRICS by recruiting India and its right-wing BJP government of Prime Minister Narendra Modi and divide it against China, Russia, Brazil, and South Africa. Look, the, the BRICS are, I mean, these are countries, India being an exception in, in that, but these are countries that are autocratic or otherwise have you know, very hostile opinions of the United States, uh, especially Russia and China. Now, there are two funny things I want to comment about those remarks there. One, he names Brazil's president Lula da Silva as someone interested in de-dollarization. And he has constantly talked about de-dollarization. And Brazil is trying to create a new currency for Latin America to do trade to get off the dollar. So it shows that in Washington, a lot of these neoconservative figures are very angry with Lula. And he is not actually a close ally of Washington, like some people strangely portray him as. No, Lula is independent, he's a nationalist, and he do, does what's in the best interest of Brazil itself. The other point I wanna to respond to is, he acts as though China is committing some egregious crime by trying to sanctions-proof its economy, that is, preventing the United States from waging economic war against it. And that's not a crime. China is allowed to do that, and it should do that to benefit its people. It's protecting its people. Now, this former top official in Donald Trump's Treasury Department, Marshall Billingsley, he also warned that Russia and China are de-dollarizing the foreign exchange reserves they hold in their central banks 
They're getting rid of dollar-denominated assets like U.S. Treasury bonds, which is government IOUs, U.S. government debt. And instead, they're investing in other assets like gold in particular. And let's keep in mind, this guy served as the assistant secretary of the Treasury for terrorism financing in scare quotes. And he really doesn't like other foreign central banks holding on to gold because you can't sanction gold. So here are those remarks that he made. If we look at what Russia did in the run-up to its further invasion of Ukraine, they began dumping ownership of treasury bonds in 2018. They, in that year, they plummeted from 96 billion in holdings down to 15 billion, and they also started buying large amounts of gold. China is now, as the ranking member has observed, embarking on its, old, its own gold buying spree. This, I haven't seen the data for May, but April marked the sixth straight month of Chinese expansion in its gold holdings. And I'm not sure I believe the official figures. We have to recall that China is the dominant gold mining player around the world, and half of those gold mining companies are state-owned. So the actual size of China's war chest when it comes to gold reserves may be far higher. In fact, I suspect inevitably far higher than official numbers suggest. Last year, China also started dumping its treasuries. 2022 marked the largest or second largest decrease on record with a drop of about 174 billion. And China stood at the lowest level since 2010 in terms of its holdings. In the same hearing, he expressed fear that China, as it stockpiles more and more gold in its foreign exchange reserves, could start issuing yuan contracts, yuan denominated contracts in its currency that are backed by gold. The thing I do worry, I come back to this fact that they've been buying a lot of gold, is that one of the things that they could do, which would be very concerning uh, if, if they wind up having larger reserves of gold than we, we believe, is they could start issuing one uh, or gold-denominated, gold-backed one contracts. And that would further their ambition for introducing the one onto the world stage. Now, I'm not a gold bug. I don't think that currency should be all simply pegged to a commodity that is deflationary. It's when you're in an, a moment of economic crisis like the Great Depression, it's almost impossible to get out of that recession or depression without deficit spending. The government needs to deficit spend and they need to invest in infrastructure and social programs and poverty reduction and employment. So fiat currencies have a lot of advantages. I'm not arguing for the gold standard, but it's interesting that a top treasury official who oversaw sanctions is angry about how gold is sanctions proof. And furthermore, in his testimony, Marshall Billingsley, this top Trump treasury secretary official, he also discussed how the sanctions imposed on Russia, although they are historic, are still nothing compared to what could be imposed on China, or rather the challenges of imposing sanctions on China, because the Chinese economy is the world's biggest economy when you measure according to purchasing power parity, which is the better way of measuring the GDP of a country. And he said, he pointed out that the four biggest banks in the world are Chinese banks, and they also happen to be state-owned banks, and they're essentially sanctions proof. So he warns that China is simply too big of an economy to be destroyed by U.S. economic warfare, which is, of course, what the neocons in Washington, like him, want to do. How do we deal with the fact that the size, the sheer size of the Chinese economy dwarfs what we've been contending with in the form of Iran, 
Russia, and so on. And one of the first things the Biden administration did in the wake of Russia's attack was sanction, start sanctioning Russian banks and de-swifting them. And that's one thing when you're going after an economy smaller than the size of Texas. It's quite another when you consider that out of the 100 largest banks in the world, China has 20, and all four of the top four are Chinese banks. And that is why many within the Treasury contended when I was there, and they will contend to this day, that these Chinese banks are simply too big to sanction. I don't agree that we can allow that to stand, but I do believe we have to start taking very swift action to put us in a situation where we could take punitive measures on these banks if necessary. The chair of this congressional hearing, the Republican Blaine Lutzkemeyer, he made similar remarks. He said that he's afraid that as China's economy grows and Beijing trades more and more with countries around the world in its own currency and other currencies, it could ship away at the dominance of the U.S. dollar. The conversation around the, the dollar being a reserve currency is becoming louder and louder as we have more and more, I think, threats to it. I think I agree with all of you that there's not an immediate threat within the next few years. But as a businessman, I usually look at not only short-term problems, but I look at long-term problems. And I look from 30,000 feet. And from 30,000 feet and from long-term, I see the threat that each of you have uh, discussed this morning with regards to China. Uh, they are trading now in their own currency with their friends and allies. As that sphere of influence gets bigger, it, it chips away at our reserve currency. The Democratic ranking member of the subcommittee, Joyce Beatty, also made very similar comments, once again showing this kind of bipartisan consensus between neoconservative Republicans and Democrats. We've heard from all of you uh, a lot about China and Russia's increasing their gold reserves, uh, the use of alternative payment systems, and certainly um, some uh, or certain African nations also partnering up to develop a multilateral system that evades the dollars. What's very troubling and revealing about those comments there is that until January 2023, Joyce Beatty was the chair of the Congressional Black Caucus. She represents people of African descent in the United States. And yet in this congressional hearing, she has this very neo-colonial rhetoric complaining about sovereign African countries trying to trade with China and Russia in different currencies, not the dollar. So she's basically saying that she wants the United States to maintain economic neo-colonial control over the trade of African nations, trying to prevent them from trading with China and Russia. I mean, there's completely no respect whatsoever for national sovereignty. And this is something that was completely bipartisan. She's a Democrat. And many of the Republicans in the hearing had the exact same kind of neo-colonial rhetoric saying that other countries basically don't have the right to trade with China and Russia in any currencies that they want. They have to use the U.S. dollar and they basically have to get permission from Washington. This attitude, of course, could also be seen in the testimony of Tyler Goodspeed, who was Donald Trump's top economic advisor. And in the hearing, he warned that in the short term, one of the main threats to U.S. dollar hegemony is simply other countries trading with China in renminbi. So economists like to talk about the short term versus the long run, and I think that's applicable here. Short term, I think the risk is that we continue to see diversification away from the dollar, PRC continuing to push other countries to use trade invo invoicing in renminbi, that they continue to promote the offshore renminbi market, that they continue to promote or force bilateral clearing. 
Longer term, I think the, the bigger risk is that foreign investors no longer perceive the United States federal government debt to be as safe and risk-free as it is today perceived. Another participant in the hearing was the Democratic congressman from North Carolina, Wiley Nickel. He's a right-wing Democrat, and he complained that as China and Russia develop new payment systems to, that don't use the dollar, that that's a way that it can get around sanctions. And this prevents Washington from simply waging economic war on anyone it wants. One potential threat to the US dollar as the global reserve currency is the growth and expansion of alternative cross-border payment systems, such as those developed by Russia and China. Increased use of these systems could lead to a world less dependent on US dollars, which would likely limit our traditional methods of economic sanctions. Sanctions that are made possible by the strength of the U.S. dollar could push countries to reduce their use of U.S. dollars and minimize the global economic power of the U.S. Governments could experiment with other national currencies to proactively shield their economies from the U.S. Now, some of the most interesting testimony in this hearing was done by an economist who, unlike the others, didn't work for Donald Trump. His name is Daniel McDowell. He's a professor in the political science department at Syracuse University in New York, and he wrote a very interesting book titled Bucking the Buck, U.S. Financial Sanctions and the International Backlash Against the Dollar. Now, he is a neoconservative. He's not in any way against dollar hegemony. But what is interesting about his argument, and it's a correct argument, is that the U.S., by imposing more and more sanctions on countries around the world is actually weakening the dominance of the US dollar. The United States right now has sanctions on countries that represent more than one third of the global population, representing 29%, nearly one third of global GDP. And this is incentivizing de-dollarization. And he spoke about that very well in the hearing. Dollar preeminence and US financial centrality are not without consequence for American coercive power, as you all know. With little more than the stroke of the president's pen or through an act of Congress, the US government can use financial sanctions to impose enormous economic costs on targeted foreign actors, be they individuals, firms, or state institutions, by freezing their dollar assets or cutting them off from access to the banks through which those dollars flow. As the United States has increased its reliance on financial sanctions as a tool of foreign policy, it has provoked anti-dollar policy responses from our adversaries. Though such steps are unlikely to upend the dollar's position as top international currency, including the reserve currency role, over time such policies could diminish the course of capabilities that the United States derives from dollar centrality. Over the last two decades, the United States has used the tool of financial sanctions with increasing frequency. For example, in the year 2000, just four foreign governments were directly targeted under a U.S. Treasury country program overseen the Office of Foreign Assets Control, or OFAC. Today, that number is greater than 20, and if we include penalties from secondary sanctions, the list gets even longer. The more that the United States has reached for financial sanctions, the more it has made adversaries in foreign capitals aware of the strategic vulnerability that stems from dependence on the dollar. Some governments have responded by implementing anti-dollar policies, measures that are designed to reduce an economy's reliance on the U.S. currency for investment in cross-border transactions. Though these measures sometimes fail to achieve their goals, others have produced modest levels of de-dollarization. Notable examples here include Russian steps 
to cut its dollar reserves and reduce the use of the dollar in trade settlement in the years leading up to its full-scale invasion of Ukraine, or China's ongoing efforts to build its own international payments network based on the yuan, efforts that have taken on a new sense of urgency as Beijing has become more aware of its own strategic vulnerabilities from dollar dependence. However, the growing number of states espousing anti-dollar viewpoints and adopting anti-dollar policies does threaten to weaken the future potency of U.S. financial sanctions. Finally, whenever possible, U.S. financial sanctions should be coordinated with our allies in Europe and Asia, who should feel as if they are key stakeholders in the dollar system and not vassals to it. Another Republican congresswoman who participated in the hearing from California, Young Kim, who's yet another neoconservative, she complained that China has developed other ways to provide financing to countries that don't involve the U.S. dollar. Specifically, she demonized the swap line agreements that the People's Bank of China, China's central bank, has signed with other countries' central banks, like in Argentina, for instance, which is a way for Beijing to provide liquidity for other countries to provide them credit, but not using the dollar and not using the Washington-dominated international financial institutions and also getting around the SWIFT system, which is why she portrays this as something very nefarious and evil that needs to be challenged by the U.S. government. But we should all be troubled by the increase of central bank swap line agreements deployed by the, the People's Bank of China. Uh, according to 2021 CBOC report, it said that it has swapped facilities with 40 countries with a combined capacity of almost $4 trillion yen, or about $570 billion. And just a few days ago, Argentina, a country facing a deep currency devaluation and 109% annual inflation, they announced a deal to renew its currency swap line with China and double the amount it can access to nearly $10 billion. So the PCOC uh, justifies the swap lines as a way to force countries to utilize the, the yen as a method of exchange. So I want to ask you, Mr. Uh, Billingsalia, instead of uh, liberalizing its capital account and allowing the yen to be fully convertible into the currency exchange markets. The CCP has opted its increase into uh, its bilateral swap line agreements to further internal, uh, internal, internationalize its currency. So is there anything that the United States can do to slow down or reduce adaptation of the PCOC's current uh, swap lines? Now, it's obvious that most congressional hearings in the United States these days involve demonizing China. We're in a new Cold War and Washington constantly de demonizes Beijing. And this subcommittee on national security, of course, featured a lot of demonization of China. And a Republican congressman from Texas, Roger Williams, made a comment complaining about China's monetary policy. And he said that China has maintained an uneven playing field because China has capital controls, which, I mean, again, they portray China as some nefarious evil country for protecting its economy, for protecting its people, for not opening up all of its markets and allowing Western corporations to simply control its entire economy and buy up all its assets. That's called defending its actual national security. But of course, the U.S., wants every economy to lift all capital controls, to privatize everything, to open up their financial account, and to allow Wall Street to colonize the entire world, to colonize China. So anyway, the point is, in this rant, this Congress, Republican congressman from Texas 
said that China is manipulating its currency because China has its own domestic monetary policy. And this is not illegal. It's not criminal. China wants to make its exports more competitive. China wants to make sure its currency is not overvalued, which would hurt the competitiveness of its exports. And he portrays this as something nefarious and evil. And in response to these comments, the two former top officials in Donald Trump's Treasury Department, both of them say that they want to return to the Trump administration's era labeling of China officially as a currency manipulator, which is yet another form of sanctions against China. So really, this is them calling for the United States to punish China economically, to block it from international financial institutions, or at least prevent it, make it more difficult for China to get access to them. And all because China refuses to allow the U.S. Central Bank, the Federal Reserve, and Wall Street ultimately to determine its own monetary policy. So punishing China for having its own sovereign domestic monetary policy. In, in recent years, China has conducted a series of strategic initiatives aimed at the challenging the dominance of the U.S. dollar. And one specific strategy has been currency manipulation. The Chinese have been manipulating their currency to gain unfair advantages in, the, in international trade, and Communist China is creating an unlevel playing field by imposing capital controls and limiting the currency flowing in and out of China. So this negatively impacts countries with market-driven exchange rate systems by creating doubts about the con uh, convertibility of the UN. So we must put an end to this manipulative practice and protect U.S. interests by holding China accountable. Well, I think it, it's important that the <clears throat> that the Treasury resume calling calling it for what it is, which is a currency manipulator. Uh, we did that under the Trump administration. The Biden administration should yet again label China as a currency manipulator. Now, the last thing I want to conclude with today is a look at a comment that was made by one of the top officials in the Treasury under Donald Trump, Marshall Billingsley, that he made in this hearing, which shows that a lot of the so-called expert economists are not only driven by their right-wing ideology, but they're also driven, in some cases, by their own personal economic interest. That is, by their own bottom line, their own profit motive. A Republican congressman from Pennsylvania, Dan Muiser, asked the former top Treasury official, Billingsley, if he thinks that the U.S. government should cut spending and invest more in energy, that is oil and gas, he referred to it as energy independence, but he means expand oil and gas production. And the, this former top Trump Treasury official, he said very clearly, I certainly hope so because it would help my investment portfolio. So, Mr. Billingsley, I'd like to just start with you. What do you think reversing some course here where we rein in spending, i.e. curbing inflation, create some predictability to future taxes, uh, and have a uh, energy ind independent program. You think those would be steps in the right direction? I do. Uh, it would certainly help my, my investment portfolio. So this is a top former member of the Treasury Department admitting that he's partially motivated by his own bottom line, not what's, not what's best for the country, what's best for him and his investments, which, I mean, for me, that says everything about the corruption in the United States, which is so normalized 
And we're constantly told that the U.S. is a great democracy and there is no corruption. This is the kind of corruption that happens all the time. I mean, let's not even talk about, for instance, the massive insider trading that happens all the time in the U.S. Congress among both Republicans and Democrats. It's completely rampant. This is the economic corruption that also feeds into the neoliberal right-wing economic ideology that we're constantly told is gonna bring everyone prosperity, but no, it actually is only going to bring a small handful of economic elites and oligarchs prosperity. Well, poverty gets worse, homelessness gets worse, inequality just skyrockets and gets worse and worse, while the rich pay fewer and fewer taxes. But anyway, I mean, that's a topic for a whole other conversation. With that, I'm gonna to conclude today. I know this was a long analysis, but I wanted to go through some of the main points of this lengthy two-hour congressional hearing on the dominance of the U.S. dollar. It's important to listen to what people in Congress, both Republicans and Democrats, are saying, and mainstream right-wing economists are saying, like those who were invited to participate as so-called experts in this hearing, because again, it shows this schizophrenic narrative that I was talking about, where we're constantly told that one, the US dollar is inevitably always going to be the global reserve currency. It is the greatest thing ever invented since sliced bread. However, simultaneously, we're told that China and Russia are evil and nefarious and they're, they're, they're masterminding plans to replace the US dollar. And that's bad. And at the same time, the dollar system is, it's so strong, but it's also weak. And that's why we have to defend it. Anyway, you can see this very schizophrenic narrative inside Washington. And I just wanted to point out this hearing because we're, we're frequently told that de-dollarization is a myth. It's exaggerated. It's either not happening or it's not really happening significantly. And here we see that the US Congress, by holding this hearing on de-dollarization and the need to defend US dollar supremacy, as they put it, that the existence of this congressional hearing is all the evidence you need that de-dollarization is indeed happening and it's growing in many countries, especially in the global south. With that, I'm going to conclude here. I'm Ben Norton. I am the editor of Geopolitical Economy Report. If, the, if you like the work that we do here, please subscribe on whatever platform you're watching or listening on. It helps to promote our material in the algorithm. Also, please consider supporting our work. We're completely independent. We have no big institutional support or big donors. If you want to support us, you can go to geopoliticaleconomy.com slash support. And there are several ways that you can support. The best way is you become a patron over at patreon.com slash geopoliticaleconomy. Any small amount you could provide goes a long way. We're completely independent. I want to thank everyone once again. I'm Ben Norton. I'll see you next time.